This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Welcome to Eat Drink Asia. I'm Bernice Chan, and I'm Alkira Ryan Frank, and we've got a special podcast for you today. A feature interview. He's one of TV's biggest celebrity chefs, and he's famous for his potty mouth. It's still walking, that f-ing piece of beef. What is that? Bone thicker than the meat. Get out! You're not good enough. Blow fire in your face, you donkey. You're a first-class. That's right, British celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay was in Hong Kong to open his third restaurant, May's Grill, in Harbour City. And Benice got to sit down with him. What was he like? Well, actually, it was pretty nerve-wracking because everyone else around us was nervous. Did you feel that? Yeah, there was definitely like a nervous vibe. We got there like what an hour and a half before the interview even kicked off. <laughs> but when he walked into the room, like I, I feel like when you see people on TV and then you see them in real life, everyone's like, "Oh, you know, he was much shorter in real life. He's very much much bigger in real life. He's six foot something. He's six foot one. He's an athletically built." guy and he 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 holds the room yep he went around and spoke to each one of us asked our name shook our hand and then we sat down and he's like let's get on with it this is what he had to say so gordon ramsay thank you for coming and joining me in your new restaurant maze grill uh, you're very welcome uh, welcome to you and why another restaurant in hong kong why are you kidding me have you seen the view chefs don't get the opportunity to be in such amazing locations I think of uh, the Trinor Palace uh, restaurant uh, in Versailles, overlooking those wonderful gardens. Uh, now, I thought five years ago I could never match that beauty, but uh, Maze Grill is a big one for me, and so to have the opportunity to open here in Hong Kong um, on such a dream location, um, I'm a lucky boy. And it's your third restaurant here. It's number three. Yes, that's right.、Um, so. Hopefully, lucky number three.、Um, Maze Grill, you know, we launched、uh, over twelve years ago in London, and it was my idea of an intimate, intimate steakhouse,、um, modern,、um, all down to the product, you know, grass-fed,、uh, hand-reared、uh, beef. So,、um, steakhouses have become a big phenomenon back in Europe,、um, and bringing it here to Hong Kong is, is, is a dream. And when you're in Hong Kong, where else do you like to visit? So I'm like a,、uh, I'm like a magpie. I go to all the little、uh, sort of shiny new stars and the openings of、uh, young new chefs that are you know new kids on the block. I was there once myself, so、um, I love great Chinese food,、um, and that you can definitely get here proper. We have Chinese food in abundance in the UK, and it's it's everywhere. But here, coming to the core, it gives that level of authenticity. So I'm、uh, I'm a night owl. I'll try to eat out in two or three restaurants in one night when I'm here in Hong Kong. Wow, that's pretty cool. A couple of starters, a couple of mains, and then back for another couple of starters. I pace myself. Plus, chefs like to graze, so I can take one or two mouthfuls and then move on to the next course. I don't need to sit there and eat it all. I get excited about、uh, picking, just like we do on a normal day. Pick, pick, pick. So,、um, can we go back to when you were growing up in Scotland? What was that like? So, you know, growing up, watching Mum cook. Um, it was about helping her. I think she had two jobs. You know, she worked as a、uh, nurse、uh, at night and then a cook during the day.、Um, I only lived in Scotland until I was five, and the majority of my childhood was strapped on Avon. So、um, very humble.、Um, 
but even down to you know watching mum bake bread, uh, making the most amazing pies. And so we never had a starter main course and dessert. That, that was never the case. But what we did have was proper, humble, rustic food from the most amazing stews to great soups um, to classic Sunday roast. And a steak back in those days uh, was a big treat. So mum used to run a little tea house in the high street of Stratford Avon. So she was a cook, but a very thorough cook in a way that it was never glamorous. But this place was just fully booked all day long. And it was a traditional British cafe serving sort of bistro food in the evening and a cafe during the day. And before football practice, and even after practice, I'd be helping her peel potatoes, uh, cleaning up uh, in the pot wash, um, peeling onions, peeling carrots, and doing all the boorish, laborious jobs that was sort of unglamorous. But for me, it was just about helping mum. And when did you start to learn how to cook? Was that from her? Um, she would always ask for help, and I'd assist. I was a great eater then, and I, and I grew up becoming unfussy because it was almost rude to leave anything that your mother cooked. So it was that kind of household. Um, at the age of 12 and 13 and 14, I never really wanted to be a chef. I was too obsessed with football. And so swimming and football and uh, running was, my, was my, my go-to sport. So cooking didn't really start until I was around 16 or 17. And then it was almost you know, quite scary being in an environment that you didn't understand properly. And you're going through those motions, understanding, you know, textures, uh, balance. Um, and then when you're super busy, you just have to do stuff without actually questioning it. But if I didn't have that background from mum and that understanding quite early on, uh, I think it would have taken me a lot longer. So I got used to the hustle and the bustle quite early on. My sister had a part-time job in a, a local Indian restaurant. And I used to go in there and help her, you know, on a Friday and a Saturday night. So I was getting taught this incredible... British cuisine, but at the same time, understanding how to make an amazing curry in the local tandoori. So, um, curries for me was that sort of mm, treat to understand how to make a great curry. I, I, I knew that by the age of 15, so I had these recipes written on doilies. And every time these doilies were coming back from the tables, I was writing ideas down and little recipes, because the Indian chef didn't speak much English. So they were showing me um, photographs of boxes of spices and I was just like ripping the labels off. And that's how I started putting together the most amazing curries. Wow. Which was a treat because I was washing up in this place. And so I think back to those days now of a butter chicken and how I've perfected a butter chicken today. It, uh, it's, it's, it's endless. And you mentioned football. How did you get into, into that? Uh, I was at Stratford High, um, like any young you know, guy. I supported Liverpool and um, football, rugby, swimming. You know, I was very athletic uh, growing up. And I think that kind of, uh, kind of neighbourhood, you know, there was no distractions. We didn't have iPads and phones and you know, games and Xboxes. There was no such thing. So you know, I'd be playing football three or four times, sometimes five, five times a week. And uh, I, 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 never, I, never, I was never one to sit at home getting bored. I was always doing something, competing in a gala, uh, competing in a football match, uh, or training before school. So I swam for the county, I played football for the county, and so I had a very busy, active childhood that uh, food was a massive fuel. And so I, 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 I ate everything. So uh, did you have a favourite team? Uh, Liverpool. Liverpool was a team that I really... Uh, uh, adored growing up and then um, I, I played in the FA Youth Cup you know, as an under 16 player and so 
you know, I just had that natural connect with sport that um, very rarely spent much time at home. So where did this competitive streak come from? I think that competitive streak for me is the backbone of sport. In sport, you have to be competitive. And so in a kitchen, you have to be competitive. If you work as hard as I do and you want to get to the very top, then you depend on a team. That team is all about uh, passion, dedication and finesse. I think getting the uh, culinary course early uh, at the age of 17 uh, at college, going to London at 18 and, and getting my first job as a commie in a five-star hotel really taught me that you know, food was this incredible journey that I wanted to travel, spend a couple of years in London and move to France. So I got to France at 22 years of age. And that's when it really started to come to light. Having worked for Albert Roux and Marco White in London, uh, I was very fortunate because I got to work with some great chefs early on. So I didn't know anything different. I just knew that level of perfection was, was, was what you strive for on a daily basis. But it was the injuries you sustained in football that led you to yeah. move into another career. Two bad injuries. Uh, first one, I perforated my spleen. I was in a tackle with a goalkeeper and uh, two-fisted uh, punch. I jumped so high and I, 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 I had a perforated spleen. So that was a, a big setback. It took me months to get back from that. And then a year later, I smashed my cartilage and tore a crucial ligament. And so... And I mentally, thought, how were you feeling at that um, time? I was never one to sit and sort of cry over spilt milk. You know, I was a very strong, focused young man. Um, I knew I could get back to fully fitness, but I didn't quite think that it was ever going to be the same again. So uh, I kept on trying out for several teams. And I think when you get that kickback, you have to realise early on uh, it's not going to happen. Move on. Don't sit and hold on to something that's never going to materialise. That's a very firm lesson, I think. Bernice, did you know anything about his football history? It sounded like he played soccer at a really high level. I didn't know it was that high, but then when he was talking about his injuries, I could not help but cringe, and you can probably see it on my face in the video. But it sounds like he, it, his injuries and what happened to him on the field and because how he stopped playing football has really, really influenced him to go into cooking and, and take that competitiveness into cooking. And discipline, too. Speaking of discipline, the only man scarier in the kitchen than Gordon Ramsay will definitely be Marco Pierre White. And that's where he started off. So how old were you when you decided? Eighteen. 18, I got enrolled in a, a HND hotel catering course that, for me, was a way of hiding you know, the hurt from football and, and focusing on something else I wanted to do. And, you know, I don't know why, but in those days, I thought I was going to become a general manager at a five-star hotel. Can you imagine me running a hotel? No chance. So I, uh, I got into um, a little country house hotel called the Roxham House Hotel just outside Stratford Avon. I could go to college one day a week and work six days a week. And I had my lodgings and a, a studio uh, flat within this hotel. And that's how it started. Uh, and I thought I knew how to cook then at 18. But I think back to how happy I was then in terms of learning. After a year, I got my first distinction. Um, I moved on. I had to move on because London was calling. And that's where it all started to sort of take shape. So what... What did you like about cooking? What do you like about it so much? I think there needs to be a natural connect to the, uh, the vision. Um, 18, you know nothing. You know zero. You may think you do, but you know nothing. What attracted me more than anything was striving for perfection. 
standing in Mark and Pierre White's kitchen. I was 19, he was 25. He had just opened. This guy was on a mission for success. So I had one of the best mentors ever. After that, I wanted to become French. And so he suggested I went and worked for a French restaurant first. I, I got into the Gavroche. That then was three-star Michelin. So early on in my career, I got, I got looked after by some very big chefs that helped catapult me to the next job. And it's what I do today when I see a young chef that's time to move on. I knock on the door of another famous chef and put them into that arena. And that's very important to be that unselfish. So what, what connected me more than anything was the desire to perfect. You know, I think it's the same in sports. If you want to get to the very top, then you're training endlessly. Food is exactly the same. It wasn't about money. Uh, I didn't give a damn about the salary because we didn't earn anything. You had a roof over your head. Uh, you didn't have a car, didn't have a bike. You just learnt. And I think it was like almost studying medicine because no one tells you you're going to make it. No one's going to say, look, stick to this for the next five years, you'll become successful. You have to forge your own direction. And that's, that's healthy. Not having to depend on anybody, just you, your own discipline, your self-esteem, and that level of dedication. I also saw what it was like at this sort of crappy end of the market, because there were chefs I was working with that were in their 40s and 50s that uh, had given up. And I spotted that quite early on, and it was quite sad to see just go through the motions, split shifts, five and a half day a week, you know, uh, drinking a little bit too heavy, um, and the job had beaten them. And so I wanted to make sure that wasn't me by the time I got to 40. So what did you learn most from uh, Marco Pierre White and from um, Albert Roux? And Marco taught me finesse. Marco could put food on a plate within 30 seconds and dress uh, like Picasso. Albert taught me flavor. Albert was instrumental of taking a leek and cooking it four ways, with no waste. Marco would use the white of the leek only and trash the rest. Albert, nothing went in the bin. And so I was lucky to get that kind of flair on the plate, but then the heart of the sort of French cuisine with Albert Roux was just magical. It was rich, sumptuous, but there was, there was nothing ever wasted. And in business, you know, you could be the best chef in Britain, but if you can't run your own restaurant financially, then you'd be a bit stupid. And then 22, you know, I was begging to become French. I went and lived in Paris for two years. Again, every time I got into a new kitchen, I started at the bottom. Didn't go in at senior level, didn't, because the higher you go, the less you learn. And so I went to the very bottom every time I went into a new kitchen. And even leaving Marco, which after two and a half years, going to the Gavroche, I could have got a, a senior position. No. Start at the bottom, understand the tools in the box before you get given. So you purposely wanted to do that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I became a baker. Uh, it was the worst job in the house because you started Sunday night at sort of 5, 6 o'clock in the afternoon and worked right through till midday on Monday. And then I perfected the bakery, desserts, fish, meat. And so for me, um, I never wanted to be in a situation one day, if I ever had my own kitchen, was not knowing what was going on from desserts to bakery to, to, to petit fours. I, I needed to know everything. But the dream job for me is at the age of 22 when I got into Guy Savoie in Paris because there, again, was a chef that had won two Michelin star, was striving for that third star. And when you meet chefs that are on that trajectory, climbing the ladder on a daily basis, it's the most exciting position to be in because you're, you're getting first-hand knowledge and new ideas you know, before they become public knowledge. So you're let into these secrets 
of uh, combinations, uh, and you're showing you're showing this passport of a of a menu that hasn't even been sold yet. So that was Guy Savoir and Marco were on that rise. I remember when I left uh, Guy Savoir going into Robichon's kitchen uh, at the Jaman. It was like going back to the Gavroche because it was all classic and beautifully done. But Guy, you know, was on that search for his third star. And so that was the second time within four years of my career that I was very lucky to work with two chefs that were on the surge, not at the top, but were on the surge up. I remember when I um, got back to London, you know, at the age of 26 and opened my first restaurant, I, I couldn't believe when Guy came over uh, and I went one star, two star, and then three years later got my third star. And he said to me, having you in my kitchen was a dream, but I never thought you'd get your third star before I did. I showed you too much. I said, chef, you did. Thank you. So still today, you know, it gives me chills when he walks into my restaurant today because he taught me so much. And that level of unselfishness is very rare when chefs give you so much of their secrets because I had to work twice as hard in a French kitchen. Being English, you know, everyone taking the mickey, French food was number one, English food, no one gave a damn about. Fish and chips, steak, kidney pudding, they looked at me like I was some sort of tail end of a roast beef that sat there desperate for, for knowledge. But they didn't know I had Marco Pierre White behind me, I had Albert Roux behind me, and I could cook. At 23, you know, I could cook, I just didn't have much knowledge. So when did you know that you wanted to open your own restaurant? When I moved to Hong Kong. <laughs> for that. <laughs> 27, uh, when Aubergine, Marco gave me a call and there's a restaurant that his partner had that had gone into uh, bankruptcy. Um, he said, I have a, an amazing deal. You've got 25% of a restaurant. It's a little bistro in Chelsea. Uh, are you interested? I was working at the Tom Claire at the time for Pierre Kaufman, running his three-star Michelin. And I said, look, I've got a great job. He said, yeah, but this could be yours. And so I went and had dinner there uh, discreetly with him one night on a Saturday. Tom Claire was only open Monday to Friday, so I was off Saturday, Sunday. And uh, fell in love with this little bistro. Literally, 45 seats, back of beyond Chelsea. And it was on a little road called Park Walk. And it was a, um, an Italian restaurant called 11 Park Walk. And literally three months later, I borrowed 10,000 pounds from the bank. I had the walls rag, sort of finished with this yellow Mediterranean feel. Got a big table in the middle of the dining room. Got pumpkins and uh, wild mushrooms and truffles on this table because we had no furniture. Um, and opened up, uh, yeah, this tiny little bistro. Uh, a year later, um, in fact, three weeks after being opened, we got reviewed. Uh, and it was the Evening Standard, and they reviewed my restaurant and Marco's new restaurant. And so it was like Marco's protégé, and he got three stars, I got two stars, and that, that, that was it. it just, the place went crazy. You know, six months later, we had Lady Di come for lunch, and, you know, Tony Blair. Uh, and so this place became a hotspot. And then two years later, we got a second star. So it goes from something tiny very quickly to this phenomenon. But when you're inside those four walls, you don't really get to see much of what's happening outside because you're too busy focusing, you know, on making it perfect. So do you recall the moment when you got the call that you got three stars? When I opened Restaurant Gordon Ramsay in 1998, literally 20 years ago this month, um, 2001, it was the first week in January. London was quiet. We were fully booked. And there was a table of two uh, on, on table three. Jean-Claude said they looked very suspicious. And it was the editor and the president of Michelin. 
and uh, the guide was coming out a week later and um, we sent dessert and then they asked for a word I'm like oh geez and so they asked me to go through to the bar uh, I said no bring through the kitchen no no they want to talk to you in the bar so okay so normally they'd come through to the kitchen and say hello and then disappear um, they sat me down uh, thank you for lunch how are you I said, very well did you have some time for Christmas no we were busy at Christmas um, anyway we're here to tell you that um, next week's publication for the 2001 guide uh, you're the recipient of three stars and this whole thing just went silent everything around me just went silent and they started telling me about keeping it a secret but just for press reasons you need to know this ahead of publication and I just felt that this was all a dream because I was looking with my mouth open and um, John claude was hovering around trying to eavesdrop on the conversation and it was just that amazing moment when I, I just I had this huge amount of relief but then fear because I think winning three stars was a dream maintaining it you know 17 years later to this day uh, is even harder but the inspectors left uh, sent the last table I locked the door uh, and you know opened up champagne for everybody and told them the great news and they were just yeah they were they, were, they, they couldn't believe it I couldn't believe it um, and so yeah Six guides, you know, three stars. It was a dream. I mean, a, a huge dream. So once you get it that early, you protect it. We set Rawlos Road up with 12 tables. It's 40 seats, five days a week. So it's not governed by, you know, 200 people a day. It's, it's 40 lunch and 40 dinner. And still to this day, you know, 20 years, we've had two head chefs. John Claude and I, he was with me at Aubergine for five years. We've been together for 25 years. So it's an amazing family, close-knit you know, environment uh, and, and, you know, staff are there for a long time. And did you ever think you would open a stable of restaurants all around the world as well? You never think about that. No, you never think about that level of expansion. That's the last thing in your mind. Chefs are control freaks. I think what I, I, I needed to do um, at the age of 33 when I won my third star, you know, was I, I, I taught brilliantly. And so I got taught, so I had to teach. And so from Mark Askew to Claire Smith, you know, to Mark Sargent, to Mark, uh, Marcus Waring. Uh, it was, uh, it was it, all of a sudden this little mecca, this kitchen became a classroom because it was a religious style of teaching that, uh, no different to Robert Shaw and Ducasse and Guy Savoir, they taught you properly. So um, the expansion thing wasn't, wasn't on the agenda then. No, you don't think of running, you know, two restaurants, let alone 34. And did you think about doing reality TV? Like, how did you get approached for that? Um, TV then was not, um, was not of interest. I never wanted to be a TV chef. I think that was the, the bugbear in a way that there's certain chefs that perform on TV that don't have restaurants because they are a TV chef and the magic's in the edit. So when I did my first TV program, it was Kitchen Nightmares and that was just going in to help a restaurant that was struggling. So uh, it was a bit of a shock when it launched and it was the first time you saw how badly run these places were. And so going up to... And what was it like for you to be on camera? I know, I, I, I didn't give a shit about the cameras. I didn't stand there and sort of, hi, my name's Gordon, welcome to my show. I just, you know, I was like a, I was like a sniffer dog. Lead me to the front door, take me off the lead and, and let me turn the place upside down. So... Uh, I still get asked today, you know, what's it like working on television? I don't even look at them. I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I ignore the camera. 
I think that's the most important thing. So the first series of Kitchen Nightmares went out and it was uh, received well and all of a sudden um, you're, you're known. Uh, but I was known in the industry and then it just gets, um, it gets, it gets, it gets bigger. And so the expectations are greater and um, more people are out to, uh, you know, um, criticize you. So in this industry, you become very thick skinned and you, you realize you can't keep everybody happy. Uh, and it's the same in sport. You can't please everybody. We try. And so you become very resilient. But, you know, I know how to cook. That's the most important. And I, and, and I call it as it is. If something's wrong in the kitchen, and I think that's the one thing that upsets me still today in, 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 in the US or in the UK. You know, it's not like a doctor or, or a lawyer. Anybody can open a restaurant. That's the worst thing about our industry. You can have a dinner party Sunday night and your friends say, hey, Mary, your food's amazing. You should buy yourself a restaurant. You should serve this food. They fall in love with the, the dream as opposed to the reality of running a restaurant. Running a restaurant is a business. Um, and it's a business that is a very tough, demanding business to run and perfect. You mentioned that you have all these chefs who've worked for you and I, I actually spoke to <coughs> Mark Sargent before. Right. And um, you are so dedicated and passionate about what you do and it's, you know, how difficult is it to find people who have that same drive as you? But also at the same time, how does it feel when they leave you as well? No different to it is with Ducasse and Michel Robuchon Guy Savoir. Um, sometimes they need to go. I like it when they have their own responsibility and handing Claire Smith two Michelin stars last Monday, you know, investing in her restaurants uh, personally gives me such joy. So if they get up to my level, I'll be over the moon. And I want them to hand the baton to their youngsters and continue that search and be as unselfish with their staff as I was with them. And with all the restaurants they have around the world, how mm -hmm. do you manage them all? and keep that standard up? That's a really good question. If you think I'm going to give you all those secrets today, that's, that's impossible. Um, let's put things in perspective. Um, uh, Russian Gordon Ramsay, um, there's only one of. And so we're not trying to replicate three-star Michelin restaurants around the world. Alan Ducasse runs three three-stars, one in Paris, one in Monaco, and one in Dorchester. So that man's level of articulation in training is extraordinary, from his academy, uh, to his organization, uh, and I've, I've mirrored that. He's 10, 11 years in front of me, older. And so we have an amazing infrastructure, and I think that's the key to any successful chain. Uh, I hate that word chain, it's a group, um, is infrastructure. You don't get busy and then build, you need to build and then get busy. So everything's done with a purpose. And you're still running on a regular basis? Running as in running? Running as in? Exercise running. Oh, I think it's important to stay fit. Yeah. Um, landed this morning at half past five, went for a swim. Uh, I think the role of a chef today is crucial, uh, fitness-wise. We've seen so many chefs uh, suffer through blood pressure, heart disease, alcoholic. And so I think the role of a chef today is way more prolific than it was 10, 15 years ago. You need to be fit. You need to have that stamina male and female, to get through a busy day. So uh, am I working harder today than I was 10 years ago? No. No, no, I'm working smarter, I think. And enjoying it as well. I think that's one thing that I've really learned to do in the last 12 months, is really start to enjoy what I do in a big way. If you don't now, when are you going to enjoy it? 
how are you enjoying it? How am I enjoying it? I was very lucky to take two months off this year. So taking July, August off and spend that time with the family was amazing. The odd phone call, meetings uh, from time to time, but to have that kind of relaxation uh, and really enjoy it and spend time with the family, um, beautiful. I mean, really beautiful. So not thinking about work at all? Excuse me, Sally, sorry. Not thinking about work at all? No, definitely not. Not when I'm diving 25 meters uh, underwater, uh, scuba diving, no. No interruptions, no, uh, no food critics, no journalists, just you in the ocean. It's a beautiful position to be in. So the Gordon Ramsay that we see on TV, is that the same, as, is that your real persona? Uh, you're a smart, intelligent journalist, and you're very clever. Uh, I have two Gordon Ramsays, uh, one the real chef, and. 117, 118 hours per episode, edited down to 42 minutes, condensed version. Uh, I'm sure you can answer that one. Alkira, I know what I think about him. What about you? I, I think who we saw on the day, he was, a, he was very nice, very kind. He made sure everyone in the room felt welcome. But we also saw that he's, very, he's a busy man, he's very blunt, and he gets to the point. We saw him with our photographer. I think our photographer had about 30 seconds to take the shot. Uh, he asked him to sit down. Gordon didn't want to sit down. All right, let's stand up and take the photo. I believe what we see of Gordon on TV is him. I believe we see, obviously, a very condensed version. He's filming for so many days, and he may lose his temper a couple times, and that all makes the cut. I think to get to where he is... He'd have to have an iron fist, and I think as much as he is that that uh, you know that strong figure who's swearing at people, he's also a very kind man and very knowledgeable. Uh, so he, he definitely, I don't think there's two personalities. I think you know what you see is what you get. What about you, Benice? Yeah, he's definitely a very passionate person, very mm-hmm. passionate about everything that he does, and he wants it done a hundred percent. If that. That's all we have for you this week. There's actually a video online of Bernice sitting down with Gordon Ramsay that you can check out. And Alkira's writing the interview up for Post Magazine in the My Life column. And you can see it all, watch it all on scmp.com. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'd really like to know what you're eating. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.